0: Coming up today on The Story.
1: I was 11 years old going into grade 6 and my parents were moving out of the city where we had been to this British school and they were moving up into the desert areas. And the option was go to boarding school in the Himalayan mountains or go and be homeschooled. And I did go up there and I did already have my best friend who was up there already. And I went up too and then I found...
0: To my horror, she had a new best friend. The Story G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, author Cecily Patterson was born in Australia, grew up in Pakistan and has now written several books, both fiction and non-fiction. She joins us today from her home in Sydney to share her story and the events in her life that have shaped her into being the writer she is today. She's having a chat with Eric Scatterbone. Cecily
2: Patterson, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Glad to have you with us. And so, writing has been a theme throughout your life?
1: Yeah, look, I've always been that kid who, whenever I came to anyone's place for playdates, I was an early reader, and we didn't have many books and hardly any libraries in Pakistan, Hmm. so I was always on the lookout for another book to read. So I would come to my friend's house, and they'd be expecting me to come and play something And instead, I'd be looking at the bookshelf going, oh, I could read that one. And then I'd be sitting down trying to fit it in before Mum would come and pick me up. So I was actually a very boring friend. (laughs) But yeah, so reading and writing, they definitely went together.
2: All right, well, let's find out about your background. You were born in Australia, and then you grew up in Pakistan.
1: Yeah, so my parents were missionaries. And from the, I think when I was about two and a half, they went to train as missionaries in Melbourne. And then we left for Pakistan in 1976, And I was three years old, and I do have a memory of arriving in Karachi at the airport. In those days, the plane just went on the tarmac, and you didn't actually walk straight into the um, terminal. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting out of the plane, and as we got out, it was night, first of all, so there were lights everywhere. And then the heat just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was so hot. It was amazing.
2: Any other childhood memories growing up there in Pakistan?
1: Oh, I mean, I have plenty. The first day we arrived, when you're very cute in Pakistan, old ladies like to pinch your cheeks. (laughs) Except they do it really hard and it really hurt. (laughs) I didn't really like that. But, I mean, plenty of good memories. All my greatest childhood memories are from Pakistan. And you become part of the place where you grow up. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, when, when the bushfires came through and everybody was smelling of smoke, and I got out of the car one day and sniffed the air and went, Oh, it smells like my childhood, because Karachi air quality was never good, and Mm -hmm. it always smelled a bit dodgy, and it just made (laughs) me feel really excited and like I was home.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's kind of interesting. And then elections also played a role in your childhood.
1: Yeah, so when we arrived, really, Pakistan was in the middle of a bit of a political crisis. I mean, in lots of ways, you could argue it's been that way for a long time. But they were having a particular political crisis and they were having elections, I think probably in 77 it was. Mm -hmm. Anyway, lots of demonstrations in the streets, lots of riots, lots of stone throwing. And my parents were quite green in those first few years and there was a public holiday. And they said, oh, public holiday, let's take the kids to the beach. So we all went to the beach in the car and then the trouble was we had to come home. But what they didn't know was that on that road coming back from the beach out of the city, there was a big demonstration and people were there, mm. very angry and, and throwing things. And we had to drive right through the middle of it. And I do remember very clearly them saying, right, kids, you got to sit down really low. So we had to sit down where you put your feet in the car. Mm-hmm. And I think we were actually genuinely scared that the rocks being thrown at our car would break the windows and we wouldn't be safe. We got through. It was all right.
2: I can imagine how that would have an impact on your uh, little psyche as a young person.
1: Well, I mean, I suppose it did. But because... Because when you grow up with something, you just assume it's normal, Mm. you don't really understand what effect that has. I had a lot of bad dreams as a child, but Mm. (laughs) that was part of it.
2: (laughs) It could be. It certainly would be understandable.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, things like my brother, when he was five, he said to me, apparently, my mother remembers this, let's play elections. You get in the wagon and I'll throw rocks at you. So, you know, it was a very common <laughs> part of our experience, which was you avoid the danger. There's danger definitely out there. Don't go out there. It's dangerous. And, um, you know, it's quite normal. But then it wasn't always like that. And there were things about Pakistan which, while dangerous, were so much more fun than Australia. Like more extreme colors and more extreme experiences. Everything was sort of amplified, I suppose. Mm. It was hotter and it was yuckier and it was dirtier, but it was also more exciting as well. Australia seemed very safe Hmm. and carpeted, if you like. Everyone's house was carpeted, and no one's house in Pakistan was ever carpeted. And to me, that sort of exemplified the difference between living in the two places.
2: And your favorite childhood memory growing up in Pakistan?
1: We went on a lot of holidays in the very, very north mountainous regions and my father loves a bit of adventure, and so we got in the four-wheel drive, and we drove on roads that nobody in their right mind should probably ever drive on. <laughs> and we got to places which were so incredibly pristine and beautiful and raw that, I mean, they were just amazing. You wouldn't mm. see anything like that. So, I, you know, I feel very grateful that I got to see places that other people have never seen and probably never will see.
2: And you mentioned, of course, that your parents were missionaries. What about faith in your life?
1: Well, I became a Christian when I was six, Mm-hmm. at the Caravan Park on the Central Coast.
3: <laughs> oh, back
2: in we
1: were Australia. On holidays, okay. And my parents had always been generous enough to read the Bible to us when we were little children and to explain what the gospel was. And I remember when I was six, we read about Jesus died on the cross, and I, I was overtaken by the sense of that was for me, and that's real, and I need to do something about that. And so I cried, obviously, because you always mm-hmm. cry, and had a little bit of a, oh, I want to become a Christian, and then I did.
2: So... That relationship that you started putting your faith in Jesus from six years old, that has stayed throughout your life?
1: Yes. Wobbly, here Mm -hmm. and there, but mostly very firm.
2: Okay, so you put your faith in the Lord at six years old, and then at eight years old you had another life-changing event.
1: (laughs) Yes, I did. So I went to this very little, tiny British school in Karachi, and because our numbers were very small we had a primary school writing competition. It was called the White Essay Cup. And somebody called Mr. White or Mrs. White must have donated a cup at some point. (laughs) Anyway, every year they had this annual writing competition and I was in year three. And it was time to do the White Essay Cup. And so we all had to sit down and write a story. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a story about... Eating a chocolate frog, and chocolate frogs were very special because I didn't get chocolate frogs in Pakistan. They were an Australia thing. But I ate this chocolate frog. I turned into doll size and went to solve a problem in the doll's house. And chocolate frogs and doll's houses are two of my favorite things. They probably actually still are. (laughs) Anyway, I wrote this story. It all went away. I thought nothing of it. And then one day they announced the winner to the White Essay Cup and dun dun dun, dun of course, it was me. But the fact that I was in year three and had won this thing, which, you know, only year five or year six has won, I was quite wow. excited about it. And I thought, oh, I could actually be a writer perhaps. And it really stayed with me. And I think then a few months later we must have gone back to Australia and I remember looking, it must have been an Angus and Robertson bookshop window. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that window and it had a a whole array of somebody's books in there. And I thought to myself, one day I'm going to have a whole array of my books in a bookshop window. That has not happened yet. (laughs) I'm still not there. You're working on it. I'm working on it.
2: Now let's move on to boarding school and how it shaped your life.
1: Yeah. So um, I was 11 years old going into grade six. And my parents were moving out of the city where we had been to this British school, and they were moving up into the desert areas. And the option was go to boarding school in the Himalayan mountains, where I already had people that I knew, or go and be homeschooled in a place where it was 45 degrees for probably seven months of the year every single day. And I went, I'll take the boarding school, thanks, (laughs) because 45 degrees is not a great option. Yeah. So it was my choice, and I did go up there, and I did already have my best friend who was up there already. So we'd been best friends since grade three or grade four, but mm-hmm. we didn't live near each other, so we didn't see each other a lot. Anyway, she went up to boarding school. She'd been there for a couple of years, and I went up too, and then I found, oh, to my horror, she had a new best friend. Oh, no. This was very actually devastating. When you're 11 years old, this mm-hmm. stuff will turn your world upside down, and it really did. Because this other girl, her new best friend didn't like me.
2: Oh, made it even worse.
1: Yes. So the purpose of this girl's existence for a few months was really to make my life pretty miserable.
3: Oh,
2: boy.
1: So I would say it was bullying, really. And I was really miserable and unhappy for those first that first whole semester, which was 20 weeks long. Hmm. Away from home for the first time. No friend when I thought I had a friend. And just everybody just being pretty horrible to me. So it was, um, yeah, it was life shaping, and I think what it what it gave me was the fact that there's always someone on the outs. Hmm. It feels crummy to be on the outs, mm-hmm. and Jesus was very real to me at that time, mm-hmm. which was lovely. But I also needed a friend, and then I had to think about things like nobody actually wants to be my friend. Why is that? Is there something mm-hmm. wrong with me? So that, those were all things that yeah. over the you know a long period I had to think about. But um, it, it got better, and boarding school got better, and, you know, there were plenty of good times at boarding school. I'm not going to dismiss that. But those first few months, that first year was pretty harsh.
2: Did that kind of shape your writing fiction in years to come, in the future?
1: Yeah, it absolutely did. So after my fourth child was born, I thought, I'm actually finally ready to write fiction. I'd been putting it off for years and years thinking, I'm not emotionally ready to put myself on the page yet. I don't mean put myself on the page. What I mean is put something on the page which is authentic and truthful and meaningful and will last. Um, I wasn't ready to do it, but after the divorce of my fourth child, I thought, no, no, it has to be done and I'm ready to do it now. So I sat down and I thought, well, they reckon that you have to make decisions about what you're going to write. Mm -hmm. You don't just write anything and then hope it'll sell. You actually have to say, I'm writing for this age group or this audience niche. You know, choose a niche, stick with it. Every book is not for everyone, so you have to pick. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it and thought, okay, well, the thing that in my life most stands out to me is that 11- and 12-year-olds, who am I, who are my friends, how do I relate, what's my voice, all of those sorts of questions, and really because of boarding school. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I'm going to write for 11-year-old girls who are lonely Mm -hmm. or who are struggling with their friendships, Mm -hmm. specifically, and not particularly Christian books, but for everybody. Mm But they're going to have hope in them, mm-hmm. and they're going to have wisdom and truth about friendships and relationships, and they're going to have a good mentor for the girl character.
2: And it's all kind of inspired by that difficult period you had in your own exactly. life.
1: Exactly. Who mm. would have thought, hey?
2: Yeah, going all the way back. So those raw feelings from that young age, they're still alive in you.
1: Oh, very much. hmm Yes.
0: You're listening to The Story. Our guest today is author Cecily Patterson, who's been sharing about what it was like for her to grow up as a missionary kid in Pakistan. Next, we're going to find out about the books Cecily has written and the stories behind them. All that and more is coming up when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Our guest today is author Cecily Patterson from Sydney. Before the break, we heard what it was like for her to grow up as a missionary kid in Pakistan. Now, we're going to find out what happened next in her life as she goes on to become an author of several books. So
1: the next big thing would be coming back to Australia. Um, My brother had finished high school and my parents thought that it was the right thing as a family to go back and help support him, do some further education and find a trade, etc., So we all went back, which meant that I was leaving the end of grade 10, but in the middle of the Australian school year, because Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere is different. Right, yeah. Which meant that I either had to repeat half of year 10 or go forward Hmm. into year 11. And that was a tricky decision. Um, Anyway, I went forward and I did okay and got through high school, but really I was very unhappy and I didn't enjoy Australia at all. All I could think of was, I've come from a place in the desert where nobody has an indoor kitchen and everybody has to cook outside in the heat and the flies and nobody has air conditioning and all they want is air conditioning. And here in Australia, people want to go outside on a hot (laughs) afternoon and cook on a barbecue. That is ridiculous.
2: (laughs) Kind of reverse there.
1: Anyway, it took me some years before I became accustomed to Australian customs and also, you know, happy enough to be an Australian. That was a big challenge for me as well.
2: So you didn't enjoy being in Australia at that time?
1: Not really. This is the problem with being a missionary kid and a third culture kid, right? Mm -hmm. Because you grow up in these extraordinary places and you experience extraordinary things, when you come back to your home culture, Mm -hmm. nobody else has seen or done those things, and they don't honestly really care that much. They can't
2: relate to what you've gone through. No,
1: that's right. And so what you almost have to do is to almost extinguish your past experiences Mm. in terms of nobody cares, nobody's interested in hearing about them. So you have to almost pretend that they didn't happen and also you know nothing about what's current and going on around you.
2: Oh yeah, the latest movies, music.
1: And yet you know that you've had this incredible life and you loved it. And so it's really hard to make sense of those two things without being angry.
2: Now all that happened yep. in the middle of high school which is hard enough in the best well, that's of times. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean that had to be hard right in the middle of high school yeah, when you're going it was through puberty really and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Having to change cultures.
1: Yeah. So, so once again, the theme of my life is being on the outs,
3: mm.
1: not fitting in. You know, what's my voice anyway? Does anybody care about it? And working through all of that. So, what has happened over the years is that actually I've taken, I think, welcoming others as my my sort of purpose in mm. in lots of ways.
3: Yeah. So
1: I can walk into a room and I'm not that interested in who the main group is but I'll look around and look for the people who are on the edges, and I'll mm. find those people deliberately because I know how it feels to be one of those people.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Mm.
2: Now, then you go on to university.
1: Yeah, this was a good time. I enjoyed university. I actually felt that I had some genuine friends, and I did have genuine friends. All of a sudden, I wasn't labeled that boarding school kid that everyone hated. <laughs> and people went, oh, yeah, she's cool. Oh, You know, the other thing was, was funny about that was... Um, because I felt like a really big dag, like I I thought I'm very uncool. I don't know what's cool around here. And I thought I'm going to change my image when I go to university. I'll get my nose pierced. And oh. then people will think I'm cool. And so I'll start with a persona of being cool as opposed to being a dag. So I got my nose pierced and I was probably one of the first people. So it was late, no, early 90s, early 90s. and Not many people did it then. Now everybody does it. And um, yeah, I remember seeing somebody recently who knew me at uni. He said, oh, but you know, I was surprised you married Andrew because he was a bit of a dag and you were very cool. I'm like, huh, it works. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you've just mentioned your husband. How did you meet yes. him?
1: Yes, I met him at university, mm-hmm. um, which was nice. He was a new Christian and um, he was doing law. Mm-hmm. I was also doing law, which I'd never finished. I finished my arts degree and went to work as an editor. But yeah, we got married when we were very young. I thought, this is excellent. He's doing law. He's going to be a lawyer. I thought, I'm sick of being a missionary kid and being a minister's daughter.
2: So you want to get as far away from that as possible?
1: Well, I didn't want to get far away from it, but I thought it'd be nice to know something different. Like it would be, I was very keen on, I'd like to be normal. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit sick of not belonging and not, not fitting in, but being normal would be good, I thought. So being a minister's daughter makes you immediately not normal, just another layer of not normal. Hmm. But being a lawyer's wife, well, that would be normal, right? Okay. Anyway, so Andrew says to me, I think I'd like to be a minister. Oh no! (laughs) And now, he was a very shy person at the time, and um, he wasn't really great at public speaking. I just laughed at him, I said, no, that's stupid, you can't even put a sentence together in public, you can't preach. (laughs) You're such an encouraging wife. That was very rude of me, wasn't it? (laughs) I think so. Yes, so God proves you wrong, and he's an excellent public speaker and a very worthy minister, and um, he's been in the ministry now for 12 years.
2: Oh, that's so, fantastic.
1: Yeah, God really had to prod me along to be okay with that.
2: So God knew better than you. Yes, He did. Yeah, how are you doing with that?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty proper, pretty normal.
2: Well, I mean, you're actually excelling because you've moved away from where you were, and the people miss you.
1: But they do actually, which is so. You very must be doing pretty good. Of them, very kind of them to say.
2: Now, you mentioned earlier that you have a heart for the people who are on the outer fringes that aren't kind of in the inner circle. Yes, and of course that made me think, well, you'd make a perfect pastor's wife. Because that's constantly, you're making people feel comfortable all the time. That's part of your role.
1: It is. It is actually part of that. And I work hard at that to try and find those people. And um, it seems to work.
2: Let's talk about your first book, Never Alone. What was that about?
1: Oh, so I worked for a while when I was first married um, for the Church Missionary Society. And the head of the Church Missionary Society at that time was a fellow called David Clayton. And he was a very, you know, seemed like a normal sort of person. And we had office birthdays, and it was his office birthday, and we had cake. And I came out, and I was only about 22 or 23, and he was, you know, obviously old. And so I thought I would tease him. And I said, so, David, how old are you? You know, trying to be really cheeky. Hmm. And he said, I don't know. I said, well, that's ridiculous. How can you not know how old you are? He said, I genuinely don't know how old I am. I said, but it's your birthday today. He says, well... I don't know, it's my birthday. I think it's my huh. birthday. It actually might not be my birthday. So the story came out, and he only told a little tiny bit of it. He had been found as an orphan in an orphanage when he was approximately three or four. He doesn't know. And he didn't have any papers. Nobody knew who he was. And he was rescued by this Australian missionary. The way that they found out how old he might be, they did an X-ray of the bones in his wrist. And apparently, with children, you can tell within sort of a six-month span. Oh, is that right? Yeah, apparently.
2: Just by an X-ray?
1: Yeah, so he and his guardian picked some random date in the middle of that six-month period, and that was his birthday. No. Anyway, I was so intrigued by this story. I was going to say, as a didn't. writer,
2: you would love a story like
1: that. Well, it just goes, oh, that sounds interesting. What's yeah, yeah. But he wasn't really interested in telling us at all. In fact, he actively changed the subject at the time. So I went, oh, well, that got shut down. Hmm. Anyway, it was several years later. I had two children, and my husband was at Bible college, and david rang me out of the blue and he said it's finally time for me to tell my life story and i'd like you to write it wow and i said oh well that's a great privilege and what an interesting story and yes please and he said well how long do you think it'll take you to do it and i thought oh i've never really written a full book before i mean i've written stuff i've written articles and bits and pieces um i said oh maybe 18 months anyway the very next day I did a pregnancy test and found out. Oh, I'm pregnant! Oh, wow. So I rang him back and I said, "It'll take me eight months." And the book was done in eight months, oh, and wow. I had a baby as well. Oh, so, wow! Two two little births at that time, but it was such an interesting story to write. Yeah, not only as a whole beginning part of it, but as he went along, and it really just wrote itself. It just flowed hmm. out. So it was a lovely, lovely introduction to to writing.
2: And then your second book is more personal about your yeah, last the, child.
1: The, the The second book was several years later. My son was diagnosed with autism when he was three, Mm -hmm. and I wrote it probably when he was six or seven. No, probably eight. So it's a story of probably the first four or five years after his diagnosis.
2: And then, as we mentioned earlier, you've written several fiction
1: books. Yeah, so the fiction came a little bit later, after my fourth child was born. So I thought, well, she's napping several hours a day, and I reckon I could probably fit in some writing several hours a day. So when she napped, I wrote and came out with this little novel called Invisible. So that book ended up being number one of a series of three. That was called Invisible, and then there's Invincible and Being Jasmine. Mm -hmm. And then I did another little series about twins, and this was based on real life. So I always have trouble imagining a character out of nothing. So I have to base my characters on someone who I've seen or Mm -hmm. some person that I know. It doesn't end up being them, but it has to start with that basis Mm -hmm. so these twins that I wrote about were kids that moved with their family to Kangaroo Valley and I said to their mum oh what do the twins think about it they were 13 at the time she said oh one of them loves it and one of them hates it and I thought well there's a story so I wrote the one of them who hated it I wrote her story and then I wrote the other one as well and then I wrote a series of three and they were based in Kangaroo Valley School. so where we lived in Kangaroo Valley we were exactly opposite the school I had four kids go through that school And it's the easiest thing in the world to write something when you don't have to do any research. So I thought, this is the lazy way to write. It can be all based in Kangaroo Valley School. It was all based on basically uh, stories that could have been real Mm -hmm. and all based on kids that I knew. And lo and behold, it worked.
2: Okay, well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but uh, what are you currently involved in besides being a uh, pastor's wife?
1: I'm currently involved in a few things. Number one is I decided to learn the cello six years ago. Oh, wow. So I took lessons every week, and then when we moved to Sydney, I thought, I could join an orchestra. But it's so hard. I have to do so much practice. Anyway, I'm keen to keep going and keep improving. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two is I'm settling all my kids into three new schools, one's at university, and trying to make sense of our new life here in Sydney and the parish. Mm -hmm. And number three is I'm working on some writing projects.
2: Okay. Now, finally, if someone's listening today and they're Interested in writing, what advice would you have for them?
1: Uh, try not to do it. <laughs> oh, that's very encouraging. <laughs> <Genuinely>, <laughs> if you can possibly not be a writer, I would try not to be a writer. Because Why would you say that? It's really unlucrative and hard work. However, if you really need to be a writer, I would pick your genre, pick mm. your style, learn everything you possibly can about it. Don't just self publish thinking, oh, I finished my novel, it'll be good enough. You probably still have lots of edits to do. And the other thing is you need to write every day, constantly, because the more you write, the better you get at it.
2: Hmm. So writers write.
1: Writers write. That's it.
2: Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today.
1: That's all right. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, that was Eric Scatterbo chatting with author Cecily Patterson from Sydney. And if you'd like to find out more about her books, you can go to her website, cecilypatterson.com. That's cecilypatterson.com. Also, we invite you to join us again next time when Eric will have a second conversation with Cecily, this time focusing on her book, Love, Tears and Autism, an Australian mother's journey from heartache to hope. Cecily will honestly share about some of the struggles she went through when her son was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Meanwhile, I want to end today by saying that it was great to hear that despite some challenges, Cecily never gave up developing her gift as a writer. She has persevered doing the things she loves, and it's been a blessing to others. And as it says in the Bible, we all have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. And do not neglect your gift which has been given to you by God. Well until next time when we'll hear part two of Cecily's story I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story.
1: I was always brought up with the idea that you know naughty children should be disciplined and all I was seeing was naughty behaviour which was oh my son is having a meltdown about nothing, he must be very naughty and I shall have to put him on the naughty step or the naughty corner. Well of course that didn't work because that's not what was going on in his brain. His brain was I'm dead and dying and not coping, you know, I'm reacting the only way I know how.
0: Cecily Patterson began to notice that her baby boy wasn't developing like other children and he was eventually diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Cecily has written about her experiences in her book, Love, Tears and Autism, and she'll share what it's like being a parent of a child with autism next time. The Story, story. just another way vision is connecting faith to life.